little bit of Miles Davis to kick us off there. Welcome, everybody, to the learning curve. This is the, what are we, is it March 5th already? It's hard to believe, but we are indeed midst of coronavirus, but post Super Tuesday. Um, I'm sitting up here a little bit surprised about Super Tuesday. I'm here with Gerard Robinson. I am so eager for your thoughts. Surprised at these uh, most recent election results? Not surprised about Biden winning a a certain number of states. Not surprised about Bernie doing well. Definitely surprised that Senator Warren, uh, she lost her home state of Massachusetts. That I did not see coming. Uh, We didn't bring it home for her up here. Yep. No. Well, certainly. So we, you know, it's, do you ever just have those moments, Gerard, where you're asking yourself, could, could, when is this going to be over? Yeah, sometimes particularly because <laughs> I'm in a, in, a, in a swing state. So there's a ton of commercials uh, that come on throughout the day and in a swing state that often happens. So now that we've at least narrowed it down to two people and, uh, and we still have uh, one female candidate uh, from Hawaii, uh, who is still and in yes, the race? You. Let's not forget about Tulsi Gabbard. We can't forget about her. She's good. she's uh, plugging away. She sure is, and because it was mentioned, there's no more women in the race. I say, well, that's actually not true. So uh, we will see it in uh, March toward November. But the, of course, the big stop now is at the convention in uh, Milwaukee, which is interesting because, as we know. Uh, Secretary Clinton did not campaign in Wisconsin. And we also know that Milwaukee, uh, in many ways, is a symbol for the parental choice movement. So for the Democratic uh, convention to take place there is quite symbolic on many fronts. A symbol, uh, you know, the 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 home of private school choice, um, the home of the AFC conferences, you all say. <laughs> so lots going on and, and certainly not a place to be ignored. I personally love Wisconsin, spent a lot of time up there as a kid. Uh, cheese curds, very good stuff. <laughs> anyway, so Gerard, it also not just a lot going on at the federal level, right? We've got a ton of stuff going on in the states. Uh, good stuff, bad stuff, everything in between as legislators hurdle toward either doing nothing about uh, education or trying to do something and too often failing. So I think you've got our first story of the week, don't you, out of Tennessee? I sure do. So there are 11 families uh, from Nashville and Memphis, Tennessee, who are suing the state because they believe that the education savings account program in place is unconstitutional. Uh, They say that it's taking money away from public education, that it's violating a number of uh, laws in the state constitution. And they're represented uh, by the American Civil Liberties Union of Tennessee, the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Education Law Center, and a few others. And this is particularly interesting to me for two reasons. Uh, Number one, you know, let's just think about it. An education savings account allows parents to withdraw their children from a public school district or even a charter school and receive a deposit of their public funds into a savings account. And those funds can be used to pay for private school tuition and fees, online learning, private tutoring, educational therapies, college, higher education costs. EdChoice does a great job of summarizing this kind of work. So to me, it's a way of actually saying, hey, let's look at the future of education. Let's unpack it, unpackage it. And this is what they want to do in Tennessee. So that's one reason. Number two, as you know, I had a chance to co-edit a book about the subject. And so to me, it's also, you know, personal from the aspect of research. We currently have Arizona, Florida, Mississippi, North Carolina, 
um, joining Tennessee. There's Nevada, but the program is currently inactive. But, you know, what I want people out there to realize is that this is not the first time in the history of the pro-choice movement that the program has been sued and is constitutionality questioned. We can go all the way back to the early 90s with the Milwaukee case. It ultimately made its way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court in Milwaukee uh, for Wisconsin said it's constitutional. We know about the Cleveland case. It was a uh, private school choice case, some call it a voucher case, made it to the Supreme Court in 2002. It was found constitutional. So I tell some of my colleagues who were just concerned about the futures of ESAs that we've seen this picture before. Now, I can't guarantee that it will be found constitutional. Uh, you know, that's got to play itself out uh, in in, uh, in court. But those you know people like the governor, uh, Governor Lee, and the lawmakers who supported it, they knew full well that when they uh, put this out there, when he signed it into law, that it would be sued. So before we lose faith, uh, let's just say that, A, I'm glad that we live in a country where people can have their grievances uh, heard in front of a court. And I'm also glad to live in a country where we can see uh, democracy oftentimes uh, through legal fisticuffs uh, play itself out. Uh, hopefully it will weigh on the side of families who are looking for ways to do some great things for their children, for their, the educators who are going to work in the system. And none of this, believe me, none of this is an anti-public school move. It's really a pro-parental choice option move. Yeah, and I would add it's it's a pro kid move, right? I mean, so one of the one of the difficulties maybe with this program is that it is geographically targeted to these to these two places to to Memphis and Nashville. Um, but that's specific, right? Because it's these are places that have long struggled, and so the the status quo efforts that you know, as you you put it, that ESAs are the future of education. I'm right on board with that. I think you're I think you're right. I think these are the, the ESAs allow parents to access the kind of things that you know wealthier parents have take for granted. And so this is a, a, could be a real leveling of the playing field in ways that even other private school choice programs aren't. But um, in circumscribing it to these two geographic areas, I think that it's, it's makes things a little bit harder to fight because it's, you know, some parents can look askance and say, well, why them and not me? But I think too, what Tennessee's really got going for it, first of all, is this Tennessee's second ESA program, right? Mm -hmm. And second of all, I think if you look at this piece of legislation, it's tight. They did a good job. There's accountability there. We're going to be able to see if schools are helping kids achieve outcomes. There's, you know, there's, they're really, um, they're going to be able to see, make sure that parents are using these ESAs for the right, um, in the right way. And cheers to the people who've been implementing this, because you'll remember, Gerard, that the governor called for um, upping the timeline. So they've been pulling this off all with parents at the fore. And I believe applications for the program opened just last week, which is really an heroic feat, but it speaks to the idea that there is demand for this. Parents want this. And so you might have 11 parents who are suing and who are, you know, with lots of help from a lot of folks who have uh, not wanted private school choice to happen for a very long time. But at the end of the day, as we see in so many places, I think it's the parents who are going to use the program that are going to come out in favor of it and, uh, and not let it be taken away. Um, and speaking of things that have been taken away. Uh, I want to take us up a little bit north here, um, at least of me, to New Hampshire. And um, if we, so it, can we can we think of times when states like 
like to say no to money, when states like to say, no, I just don't want that federal money, especially in education, something that rarely happens. But no, no, in New Hampshire, it has happened not once, but twice. The legislature has said no to the federal charter schools grant. Why? Not not for kids, not for families, not for the folks who want more charter schools, kids who are on waiting lists, but because of politics. And so here we have a story out of New Hampshire that Republican legislators are continuing to push for a bill that would allow New Hampshire to accept. Now, let me just, this number, here we go, $46 million in federal grant money. $46 million in federal grant money is on the table for the children of New Hampshire, and Democratic legislators have said no because it's tied to charter schools. And, you know, it even says in this article that this is about the traditional public schools winning, not the charter schools. In the meantime, New Hampshire has over 1,300 kids on waiting lists to get into public charter schools. This is just one of those things where imagine if you're a parent or if you're a student in New Hampshire looking for a different educational opportunity, it's almost got to make your head explode, right? Or maybe you're a charter school operator looking to open up a new school to serve some of those 1,300 kids on waiting lists. And we know that New Hampshire has some really high quality public charter schools. We know that they've got a commissioner, um, Frank Edelbluth, that's been fighting um, for the expansion of charter schools. But this has just been a real fight up there and one to watch in so many ways, a sign of the time and unfortunately not a good one of, um, of you know, politicians putting, putting their own priorities over those of kids. What do you think? Well, I'm with you. I mean, think about this. $46 million in federal grant money. States send billions of dollars to the federal government. Here's an opportunity for you to actually have some of that that money cycle back into your economy. So for me, you're turning away money that at some point you had a a hand and put it into Washington, D.C. Number two, when you think about the population that charter schools are helping, some of them are high achieving, some of them are middle income to wealthy, but a number of them are not. And so you're saying no uh, to money to help some of the more vulnerable students uh, in your public school sector. And I just think that's a, a challenge. But what's also interesting is you're saying no to charter school money, but what about the magnet schools? Uh, and what about the other public school <laughs> options that you have within your state? Uh, many of them were funded by uh, federal money. Are you going to say no to that? The fact that we somehow treat charter schools differently than magnet schools when both are public school options, trying to give a different option to fa- uh, families in the state is interesting. But like you said, it's uh, politics at its best and in a election year where at least some of the Democrats, uh, those who are in and those who left, have made uh, being an anti-charter school Uh, candidate a badge of honor. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. I have to say, I long for the day when we don't have to differentiate, when we don't have to actually remind folks, remind legislators (laughs) that the charter schools are, in fact, public schools. So, all right, coming up after the break, I know we've got an old friend of yours on the show, Gerard, uh, Mr. Kevin Chavis. Excited to talk to him right after this.
We are back and we are here with Kevin Chavis, president of Academics, Policy and Schools of K-12, Inc. Kevin is a noted attorney, author, national school reform leader. Probably many of you listening already know him. From 1993 to 2005, he served on the Council of the District of Columbia, where as education committee chair, he helped to usher in charter schools and parental choice. Mr. Chavis has already also served on the boards of Democrats for Education Reform, the Black Alliance for Educational Options, and as a founding board member and senior advisor for the American Federation for Children. Prolific writer, he's received wide praise for his book, Voices of Determination. Kevin, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Well, thank you, Kara. I'm really excited to be with you as well. I know Gerard's excited to be back with you. You guys go back a long way. Yeah, and don't ask him too many for too many stories. That's the only thing I'll say. <laughs> I, th- I think that's an opening right there. Exactly. I'm going to go the question at you here, and we'll let Gerard jump in at his leisure. But um, my first question for you, Kevin, is that when you talk, you when you give speeches, when you're out in public, you often quote civil rights era figures who influenced you and your work. You've talked about Fannie Lou Hammer, Malcolm X. Tell our listeners about how you became interested in K-12 education reform and how this connects to these civil rights era figures that you often cite. Well, uh, Kara, I tell you, I, I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, uh, so, and growing up in Indiana, um, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was front and center, and also, I happened to be born uh, as a cause guy by nature. I mean, my father was, he believes in, in education, he went to college at South Carolina State at 16, he was the first in his family to go to college, he became a pharmacist, one of the first licensed African-American pharmacist in Indiana. My mother went to college as well, but she was an activist and would take me on civil rights marches. So in our household, that combination of uh, being passionate about civil rights and education was in our DNA. And when I got to D.C. and graduated from Howard Law School and got involved in community, volunteering, doing, the, doing a lot of pro bono work, uh, and then finally elected to the D.C. Council. I, I think the most cataclytic moment for me, which changed the, tra- the trajectory of my career, was when I visited our local prison in the D.C. area. And I, I, I was a basketball player uh, in, in college, and I used to have these celebrity basketball games for charity when I was elected to public service. And candidly, when I met with some of the young men in prison who were there for possession of marijuana or, you know, nonviolent crimes. And I asked the warden why, if it, what kind of education programs he had for the young men there. He said it would be a waste of time to educate them, that 85% were high school dropouts, 90% of them couldn't read, and the taxpayers shouldn't spend money to educate these men. And that hit me like a thunderbolt. So I always lead with that story because from there I started visiting schools because many of these young men came from the southeast and northeast communities that I represented in D.C. on the city council. And I would visit schools right after that, and I saw the handwriting on the wall, that the schools were not good, that many of the teachers, frankly, did not care. Uh, They had, you know, jobs for life. Some of the teachers referred to me 
can't, I mean, directly to me that we're doing the best we can for these ghetto kids, but they don't have a future. And so it just changed my whole life. And I started to really look at what was going on in education. Uh, we were considering a charter school beyond the city council. As Gerard knows, I ended up supporting it and then taking over the education committee and, and was one of the first Dems in a local legislature uh, to support charters. And sort of the rest was written from there. I, I, I feel fortunate because I found my calling uh, and found my purpose literally in a, in a uh, local state prison. Wow. Well, I am sure Gerard has a lot to say about that, given the intersections of your work and his. I, I it's First of all, you mentioned one of the first Dems to support charter schools. So, I mean, you're, it seems like nowadays that's that's an exception as well. They might one of the first and I don't know, maybe one of the last, given where we are. Uh, talking about D.C., though, in your experience there, I mean, D.C. has come such a long way. And, you know, now so many of us across the nation are looking to D.C and the gains that it's made both in its charter schools and its district schools. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what it's been like to watch this change over time in the D.C. education system? Well, D.C., uh, like Florida, like Indiana, are textbooks examples, is a textbook example of the value and promise associated with parent choice. Because I'm going to tell you right now, one of the work we did in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, by uh, supporting, uh, you know, quality options for parents, D.C. would not have had the gains in D.C. public schools. Indeed, you know, Adrian Fentu became mayor of D.C., uh, was on my staff when I was, he was my committee uh, clerk, my lawyer, when I was uh, the committee lawyer when we were moving some of these reforms. And Joe Klein and I introduced him to Michelle Ree. And I can tell you right now that because of the quality options, and I know a lot of my Democratic friends don't like the word competition, it made a huge difference. <laughs> so much so. And Kaya Henderson, she started to, you know, train her principals to actually go knock on doors in my old ward and throughout the city to tell, and principals were knocking on doors telling families, we can educate your kids, too. You don't have to send them to the charter school down the street. And, you know, similar to, you know, that poster I saw in my hometown of Indianapolis after the voucher uh, bill was passed in D.C., I mean, in Indianapolis, and they were getting people to sign up for charters, vouchers, and there was a sign posted by Indianapolis Public Schools, please call us. We, we're serious by educating your kids, too. And so I, I do think that that intersection of quality options uh, and engage parent, you know, population that knows about those options uh, and, you know, the, the the robust support of parent choice, it really does lead to the gains. And by the way, it, it, people used to say if we grew the charter movement in D.C., it would uh, kill uh, the, the public schools and, and <laughs> they wouldn't be able to grow. Well, now, you know, over the last couple of years, D.C. public schools, they've had a record growth and increase in their student population because they started to pay attention to the competition and pay attention to the needs of parents and kids. 
Yeah, absolutely. And huge increases increases on NAEP in the in the Tuta scores, one of the you know most cited urban districts. So fantastic example. I think I'm gonna flip it to our friend Gerard, who I know has some questions about everything you just said. You know, when Kevin said he was one of the first Democrats involved in this, I mean he's serious. And let's put in perspective that DC was a pretty blue democratic uh, city. Now, just go back to the late 1990s when Kevin and I had our first chance to meet. I was working then, as you know, Kevin, for uh, Arlene Ackerman as superintendent. Talk to us about the meeting that you, uh, Mayor uh, Tony Williams, Secretary uh, Page, uh, Dr. Fuller, all of you at some point just start having conversations about what the world could look like with a three-sector strategy. Yeah, you know, this was in probably 2002, 2003. And at the time we had our charter movement was making gains. Um, DC public schools, we were trying to uh, embed seeds of change there. And by the way, Gerard did a terrific job uh, working for Arlene Ackerman and may she rest in peace. I think Arlene was terrific. Arlene was very hesitant about the charter movement, but as you know, Gerard, she came around big time mm -hmm. and um, yes. she saw the value because as she, she witnessed being superintendent in places like Seattle and Philadelphia and D.C., the intractable nation, nature of the status quo, particularly the unions. But um, even though we were making gains by the time we got to 2002, 2003, you know, we had a waiting list of our charter schools going into the thousands. Mm -hmm. And I, I never forget parents would come to me and say, you know, why can't, you know, I send my kid to that Catholic school two blocks away where they got a good program. My, my, you know, my kids play with the kids there. Uh, and so, you know, when Secretary Page and Tony Williams, who's the mayor of D.C., and Howard Fuller and I sat down in the Secretary Page's office, I never forget, I was always a little hesitant about uh, vouchers. And that was largely because of my, you know, indoctrination, um, you know, as, as an elected, elected Democrat, local, locally elected Democrat. It was always like the third rail, you know, you can't go there. But as I started to really listen to the parents in my ward, I started to think, why not? And I never forget Howard Fuller in that meeting said to us, to me and Tony Williams, who was the mayor, and he was like me, but he was even more reticent to, to jump on board. Howard said, well, what, what is best for the kids? What, what is best for these families you all serve? And that, that sort of question, any way you answer it, there's the only, the only way you can answer it really is to say that more options, particularly more quality options for parents whose kids are trapped in failing schools or kids schools that don't serve them well, more options is never a bad thing. And we walked out of there with the understanding that we would support the three-sector strategy. It was a landmark strategy in which um, the federal government would write, you know, uh, $50 million uh, divided three ways for D.C. public schools, D.C. charter schools, and... Um, scholarships for um, low-income kids, combined family income in D.C. of under $25,000 a year to go to private, private schools in, in the city. 
it has been uh, wildly successful in spite of the, some of the critics who, who don't like the notion of, of vouchers. Um, over 10,000 kids have been through the program over the last 15 years. Um, 90%, over 90% graduation rate, over 90% college going rate. And uh, parents rave about the program. And they also know it's a quality option similar to uh, the growing progress we see in DC public schools and DC charter schools. Because you've had a chance to see a big city like DC, the politics over time, you and I both know that it was blue state, often union Democrats who started the charter movement, whether it's in Minnesota or Massachusetts, California. Today, we have member, members of Congress uh, and others who are really questioning whether or not charter schools are synonymous with progress or whether it's synonymous with great schools. How do charter school issues stand with national and, uh, and state blue Democrats? Well, our focus, unfortunately, in America, and you, you don't even have to just look at education, but it, it's most, you know, the biggest negative impact, I think, is on education policy and the way uh, people view education policy. Uh, our, our focus is so uh, tilted toward the political lens um, that it is anathema to what's best for children. So most Dems really fall in line, similar to where I had been leaning, you know, on the issue of vouchers in the early 2000s. Like, are you, you're, you're almost told this is what you should believe, believe in and this is what you support. This is what our caucus supports. And by the way, it works both ways for, um, you know, Republicans. Like, you, you support, the, you know, gun rights in all forms. You, you're, you're, you're anti, uh, you know, choice uh, for, for, uh, women, you know, there, there's a litany of sort of, uh, tests, litmus tests that each party puts out there as a mandate. And I just think we need to explode that. I mean, I think the nature of free thinking of, uh, citizens in a democracy is, you know, you should be guided and governed by what you think is best for your neighbors. And when it comes to this issue of school choice, the real crazy thing about it is this idea of parent empowerment should be front and center in the democratic, traditional democratic political psyche. But the only reason why it isn't, Gerard, is because of uh, the status quo and the influence of the teachers union. And I think it's borne out by the fact that anyone of means, Democrat or Republican, ends up having school choice in ways that the lion's share of American citizens don't have. And I think that hypocrisy uh, is tragic on its face. And I used to say all the time that, you know, the standard we should put for schools and the standard we should apply for parents is there should be no school that we force parents to send their children to that we wouldn't send our own kids to. Um, and I think if we live by that standard, it will be a whole different dynamic. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, you've you've already mentioned at least three times not only putting parents at the center, um, and and last week we were talking with Chris Stewart about you know putting parents at the center of decision making too, which is about decisions about that they can make, you know, about where their kid attends school. But you also have mentioned several times putting students at the center, and I want to talk to you now about the work that you're doing currently because it sounds like you're you're a person who's always you know, sees the next thing on the horizon and is looking to make it happen. Now, right now you're with K to 12 Inc. And so it's an educational technology learning company. And as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, online schooling, for example, has been, can be pretty controversial for some folks. There are questions about accountability. There are questions about, you know, how do, how do we know if it's working? But on the same token, if you think about the opportunities that can open up for so many kids, you know, used in different ways, not just fully online, but blended learning, virtual learning for, for kids who might live in rural communities that, that don't have access to um, or resources to some of the things that folks in other places might have. Talk to us a little bit about your current work and what do you think is the future of technology in schooling, yeah. in education? Carl, that's a great question, and it's interesting. Um, you know, for many years I was on the advocacy side after I left the D.C. City Council, and now that I am uh, in this role uh, where I am uh, in, in I, I oversee our partnership relationships with over uh, nearly 100 schools around the country in over 30 states, 120,000 students, 5,000 teachers are in our ecosystem, I can tell you without any equivocation, it's a lot tougher making jelly than shaking trees. Okay. It's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, it, you know, the advocacy side has its moments, but you know, this, this, this never stops. Look, you know, what's interesting. Um, I was introduced to the promise and power and potential of online learning uh, by Jeb Bush uh, in the 2006 or seven he called me and he said, Kevin, I want to, and you'll probably remember this, Gerard, and Carl, you may as well. He called and he said, I want, I'm putting together this task force of Governor Wise in West Virginia on virtual and online learning. Mm-hmm. And he said, you have a passion around education and around parents. And, and his words, I'll never forget it. And I remind you of this at the last Excel and Ed conference. He said, you know, the future of education in some form or fashion will, will include the virtual education experience. So people who are passionate about education, passionate about parent choice, need to understand this sector. And um, he said that to me 12, 13 years ago. Uh, I Impressive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really, that's, that was my, and, and really I did not know much about the, the sector at all. And I got to know Nate Davis, who's the CEO and chairman, advised him and the executive team for uh, a couple of years, got on the K-12 board and took over this role two and a half years ago. Let me tell you the, the, the facts about our student demographic and also address some of the academic issues, which are real. I think that K-12 and the virtual education world, it's almost like my, 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 my grandmama from South Carolina should say, say, boy, some people are raised, aren't raised, they just grow up. <laughs> and, and I think there's that's what happened with the online education sector. When when K-12 started 20 years ago, they tailored their approach to a state-of-the-art curriculum 
that would uh, be attractive to homeschool parents, self-starters, talented and gifted kids who can just turn on the computer and pretty much go. And that worked for a while. But as the virtual education legislation started to pass state by state, all of a sudden K-12 went from eight to 12,000 students to 70 to 80,000 overnight. And wow. they were raised. So it, and coupled with the fact that because of the increase in the number of kids they were serving literally within two to three years, and the fact that Many states still don't have the robust nature of, of uh, quality options, parent options. And 65% of our student base uh, comes from areas where there's no other school choice option but the virtual education option. So there are no charter schools. There aren't even, in many of these rural counties, there aren't even any other schools within 20 and 30 miles. For that combination of reasons, the student uh, population that we began to serve became starkly more economically, academically, and socially at risk. So much so is that only 15% of the students that enroll with us are at grade level when they join us, and most are at least two grades behind. So you've wow. had this, this sort of you know radical change in the type of students and families that were accessing uh, the virtual option. And, and I don't think K-12 responded quickly enough to deal with it. So what we have done over the last couple of years, one is we have now a laser focus on academics and um, focusing in on student-centered, a student-centered focus on meeting kids where they are. And what that means is, you know, training our teachers to understand that I know that when K-12 first recruited you, they said you'd have, you could work, wouldn't have to work as hard. Now this is the hardest job you're ever going to have. And we want teachers with the missionary mindset, like the kids used to go to the Peace Corps or work for Teach for America, that you're going to work longer and harder than you ever did. Secondly, we've got to make sure you understand how to utilize Class Connect sessions to group kids, not use whole group targeting, instru- I mean, whole group instruction is similar to what they teach you in school where everyone turned to page 50. Nope, you got to group kids based on their proclivity or their proficiency and use Class Connect to go back and forth, use peer-to-peer, teach retest, test retest, all that stuff. And then third, we need to make sure we have leaders that understand that they have to peer into the classroom regularly, just like what KIPP and Academica and, and, and Eva School Success, you know, uh, Fern School, you know, in, in, in Florida Academica, all these schools that actually know that they have to have, you know, timely professional development. So we've integrated all these uh, approaches and, and actually, you know, uh, we, we're starting to see improvement. I mean, and, 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 a lot of it's been centered around our company goal that each child will achieve at least one year's academic growth each school year if you're in our ecosystem schools. And it doesn't matter where you start. It is the fact that wherever you start, we want you to grow academically. I think this, and I know, and we can feel it, this renewed focus on academics is already making a difference. And, you know, last thing I'll say in terms of stats is, 
you know, four years ago, we only had one school in our ecosystem of schools that met ESSA graduation requirements. This year we had 15. And so we're continuing to push on state accountability, which I believe is critically important. We're continuing to push to grow students. But we also recognize that, you know, the original vision of K-12 to be a repository and a pl destination place for, you know, self-starters is, is, is not the reality now. Uh, over half the kids we get are kids that are bullied and they just can't thrive in the brick and mortar setting. We have a larger than normal numbers of, of special needs kids, you know, autistic kids, kids with medical challenges, athletes. I can proudly say that one of our students in our Colorado school won the she won the bronze medal in snowboarding in the Winter Olympics. Uh, uh, Very cool. Yeah. So it, it is a more, um, you know, uh, it's a different experience. It's, it's not for every kid, but it is for any kid who comes from a set of circumstances that can't thrive in the brick and mortar environment. And I will say to, to one thing you asked, Cara, uh, I think this is a really important point I don't want to forget is you know, we really have seen uh, the power of the virtual learning environment to uh, engage kids and meet them where they are and to hit their sweet spot in terms of their interests. You know, we're now using artificial intelligence, virtual reality. We give kids who are behind in math. We do use coins and badges. So we make it more fun and exciting, similar to the gamification, the, you know, the, 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 the video games they use. I mean, one teacher told me about a 13-year-old boy who had been behind in math, and she used the gamification. And the kid sent her uh, an email that she saw, you know, at 12 midnight saying, I got to the next level. Where's my badge? Where's my coin? So, you know, it's, it's being able to take advantage of the technology to make it more relevant to kids. We're really excited about trying to employ that in more ways to engage kids that otherwise are unengaged. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I think that in this area, especially, it, this is something where, where kids are probably really driving the bus in terms of showing adults how it is that they can engage with content. I mean, anybody that, you know, sits in a room and watches a little uh, a kid on technology, if you haven't grown up with technology, you can learn a whole lot just by watching how they engage and how their brains work around very differently from ours and so heartened to hear that, you know, we're, we're thinking about accountability. We're thinking about making sure that those programs are really great because increasingly we're seeing technology. We're seeing, I think, online learning open up. Legislators are becoming a little bit more opening to allowing these programs, online schools in their states, and also as part of private school choice programs like ESAs. And, and with that said, I know that Gerard's uh, wanting to ask you a few questions as well about, uh, about privatization, I think. Yes. Yeah. So, Kevin, when Congress and D.C. Uh, locals supported charter schools, they said, you know what, this is a privatization scheme, even though it was in the traditional or in the public school system. When we supported uh, publicly supported uh, private school scholarship. It's a privatization scheme. You work for K-12 uh, for profit company. People use a privatization part. We know right now before the Supreme Court is the Espinoza case, and it has a pro, you know, the promise to tear a big hole into the anti 
aid Blaine amendments that have blocked access to public and religious schools in 38 states. If the Supreme Court rules in favor of families as relates to Espinoza, what's, how should the community think about responding to the big pushback of more privatization? <laughs> well, the centerpiece of it all should be what's best for kids. There's no way, uh, Carl mentioned Nate earlier, I think, and when you look at Nate, uh, there's no way any of us can be pleased with where we are and where we stand in terms of educating kids. In fact, you know, two-thirds of American high school graduates are neither college nor career ready. So that means even though they have a degree, they aren't operating at the 12th grade level and mm -hmm. they don't have the skills to get a job. Correct. And, um, you know, Howard Fuller talks about this a lot now, uh, that we're transitioning from a, 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 an approach to education in which the public school system was sort of the end-all, be-all. Now, what public education really should be about is offering a, a host of delivery systems that are responsive to the various and diverse needs of parents. Because the sort of robotic... Uh, factory approach that assume kids were all at the same level really needs to be exploded. I mean, you know, I, I talked to even teachers about this. You know, some of our teachers are teachers in California and Washington State that we part in our partner schools there. They're union teachers. And I had a conversation with a couple of our union teachers. I said, do you know where it came from that, you know, kids had to take biology, chemistry and then physics? And they said, no, I said, because it was it was alphabetical. You know, they, when when we around the turn of not this last century, the century before that, you know, they said, well, let's do biology first because that's a B. Let's do chemistry next because that's wow. a C. And physics oh. after that. And, you know, logical. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so and then even the way they segregated kids according to age, it didn't really matter, you know, um, if a someone who was 12 years old was ready for what they called, you know, uh, freshman English. But if you're 12, you've got to be in there with the sixth grade class because that's the way we've segmented it out. And so everything that we have grown accustomed to from a structural point of view is actually anti-kid friendly. And you know who I think are the best advocates for this? Who are kids who come from the system. And I, I think that what we have to do is engage more young people in the conversation. Uh, I'm proud of the fact that AFC has really done a really good job with what they call Voices of School Choice, where they now have hundreds of kids who graduated from these school choice programs who are now the biggest spokespersons for what needs to happen in education and the openness associated with embracing different delivery systems inside our, our public system. So I do think that we have a long way to go. But the, the, the bottom line is that when people are exposed to the promise and potential associated with these different systems, then they understand it better. And the last thing I say about us at K-12, at the end of the day, we are a vendor and we don't actually hold charters and we don't actually... Um, the school districts that we partner with, because we partner with several school districts, they're the ones who are in charge. We're a vendor that provides the services, 
So we end up being one of those delivery systems. And by the way, you know, that's no different from the vendors that school districts already use, where they'll pay large curriculum companies millions Mm -hmm. of dollars, or they Mm -hmm. pay, you know, reading specialists. And I think the way we look at it, we 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 we're so inflammatory and we wanna we wanna assume the worst intentions. The real answer lies in us putting all that aside and actually asking the question, where is the need? What works for kids? What's the track record? Is there a way to measure and track accountability and take it from there? Because the same old, same old doesn't work for kids. Absolutely. Say you heard it here. The same old, same old doesn't work for kids. Where's the need and what's best for kids? Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Kevin Chavis, president of Academics Policy in Schools at K-12, Inc. You can find him on Twitter at Kevin P. Chavis. Kevin, we are so lucky to have spent this time with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on The Learning Curve. Oh, it was terrific. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, and to close us out on the learning curve this week, I've got a tweet from Governor Jeb Bush. He's at Jeb Bush saying, I'm glad that mom's advice is being shared with the world in the new book, Pearls of Wisdom. So as we all know, it is National Reading Month, and he excerpts this great quote from um, from former First Lady Barbara Bush's book. I mean, as we know, she was just such a great proponent of literacy, spent so much of her time, energy, and influence helping people read. And um, this quote says, stand firm in the things you believe in, but by the same token, always keep an open mind. So a great quote from a great lady to close us out this week on The Learning Curve. I'm really excited to be back with you all next week. We have got Professor Anna Galate. She's assistant professor in the Department of Educational Leadership Policy and Human Development in the College of Education at North Carolina State University. It's going to be a great conversation, I am sure. So Gerard, have a great, uh, we're almost to the weekend, right? Have a we're great weekend. There. All right. Look forward to hearing you next week. Take care. Take care.